Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Do me a quick favor. If you like what you hear at Planet Microcap, please take two seconds and give us five stars on Spotify or Apple. This helps with the search engine so that more folks can also discover and engage with all things microcap stocks. Quick note, if you missed any of the content from the Planet Microcap Showcase Vegas, I've uploaded all the keynotes, panels, and webcasts from the event to our YouTube channel, so be sure to check that out. And as I mentioned last week, our next event will be the Planet Microcap Showcase Vancouver, taking place at the Fairmont Waterfront on September 6th and 7, 2023. More information to come, but for the time being, see you in Vancouver. My guest on the show today is Howard Punch, President and CIO at Punch & Associates Investment Management, Inc. Punch & Associates is a boutique investment advisory firm that has both a small cap and micro cap equity strategy available for their clients. I invited Howard on to learn more about their equity strategies, his firm's approach to investing in micro caps, as well as their investing philosophy. We also chatted at the top of the conversation about how he would compare this current pessimism in small microcaps to other times in history where this pessimism existed. His take I found really interesting. And also, as the title states, we did spend the majority of the time talking about categorizing microcap CEOs as either missionaries or mercenaries, and how deciphering between the two has helped Howard better understand which management teams he wants to invest in. Thank you again for tuning in to the Planet Microcap Podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Howard Punch. Everyone, to the Planet Microcap Podcast, I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me right now is Howard Punch. He is the president and CIO at Punch & Associates Investment Management. Howard, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Uh, great, great. Thanks for having me, Bobby. Absolutely. It's great to have you on. You know, um, I, I've been, I, I, I feel like we have met at one of these conferences uh, along the way, but you know, I have known the punch and associates name for a while. And, and I really do appreciate you taking the time here to uh, jump on and share some of your insights, you know, it broadly in terms of what's going on in the macro, as well as what's going on in the micro here. But, you know, I want to start 
here, you know, um, just digging right in. If, if, if you don't mind me saying, you know, we could talk, you know, we could BS, but might as well get right into it. Right. Uh, <laughs> from from your, your Q3 2022 newsletter, you published your review of small caps. You know, I'll, I'll assume that we can, you know, the, we can throw micro caps in there too, right? Um, yeah. And the title of that article was uh, Small Caps Down But Not Out. I think we can all also agree that the last 12 to 18 months has just been an absolute SHIT show. <laughs> for, yeah, I got, a lot of I got my two, clients would call it that, yeah. I got two little, I got two little ones. So my, my spelling out of curse words has gotten really good. Okay. Um, so, I mean, from your perspective, how, how would you compare this current pessimism in small micro caps to maybe, maybe some other times in history where this pessimism existed? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question that we do pay a lot of attention to sentiment. Um, I think in that uh, newsletter, I uh, brought forth a, a racetrack analogy, uh, hypothetical situation where you're going to the racetrack and for some reason you happened upon a sure thing, something horse that was absolutely guaranteed to win. And uh, so what conditions would you want so you could maximize the return on that insight? And uh, I put forth uh, that number one, you'd want all the other participants or betters to think that your horse does not have a chance. And then secondly, you'd want them to focus merely on the favorites, betting all their money on the favorites. And, and the point of this little anecdote is that uh, uh, your level of return has a lot to do with how others are betting. And so if you're right on this particular horse, you, you make a lot of money. Um, now, of course, when we turn to the stock market, there are no sure things. Um, and for small and micro caps, you know, what we have right now is we have skepticism. So we have this disbelief that uh, anything can work out there. And so uh, we have the necessary, uh, if not sufficient conditions uh, for the start of, uh, of, of maybe a, a good period uh, for small caps and micro caps. So to your question on um, pessimism and how does this rank in history, you know, the last 20 years, I, I don't think any, anybody would call it um, a normal period uh, for the stock market. Uh, you had the dot-com blow up. Uh, you had uh, uh, the great financial crisis, Brexit, global pandemic. Uh, but over this time frame, large caps delivered, you know, just under 10% and the Russell 2000 delivered just under 9%. And so it's somewhat in line with, uh, with history. Um, uh, there, there's been periods in history where the stock market has experienced uh, a general pessimism, where where people seem depressed um, or pessimistic about everything, and they don't think anything will ever recover. And then there is a period, or there there, there are times when there's specific pessimism, or what I might call um, frustration where an asset class is lagging. The smaller caps uh, would be the asset class I'm referencing, and they've lagged materially in the last five years. I think the index for the Russell over the last five years is uh, has returned three to 4% versus 11% uh, for the S&P. Um, so this has contributed to a frustration or an attitude that I'm just gonna ignore this asset class until it starts 
um, treating investors better. Um, 2008, the great financial crisis was perhaps for me, having been in the business 40 years, the, the most persistently and pervasively pessimistic I witnessed for the general investment community. That was everything. Uh, that was small, that was large. It was uh, a no place to hide environment, even if you own bonds, muni bonds, you know, any non-government bonds, uh, you lost money. Uh, right now is not like that. Um, investors right now seem to be hiding out in five or 10 of the large tech companies and doing just fine. Um, they're kind of like the favorites at the track right now. And, uh, and small caps and the S&P 490 index is, uh, is, is, is leading investors to frustration and maybe a higher degree of uh, you know, localized pessimism. So um, the small cap bear market started in uh, November of 2021. So it's, you know, call it 18 months old. Uh, micro caps started at the top of the meme boom, um, March of 21. So it's over two years old. So um, back to your question is how does it compare to history? Well, there are big differences. I would probably compare this period um, to late 2002 or 2003. Uh, uh, back then, small cap investors were licking their wounds from a dot-com debacle. Uh, there were a lot of negative enterprise value companies. Today, there's a lot of fallout from like past sins like the SPAC boom, some bad IPOs, too much money uh, going into non-mark-to-market vehicles like uh, uh, private equity and venture. And now we get the banking crisis. Uh, where we, we see little optimism creating um, what we think are some pockets of, of opportunity and uh, some good good companies, I think, are getting painted with the same brush as the, the, the bad, bad companies. So quick, one follow-up to everything that you just said there, you know, because this is a more recent example that I've seen where, you know, and because I, I hear that and, and I think, and I, I tend to agree with your opinion that, you know, now is probably a time where you want to, you know, probably bet on your your better names, right? Maybe look a little bit more closely, maybe allocate a little bit more. Like if you don't want to be in full cash, like maybe look at the names that you really know well, you feel confident in the long-term strategy. But there was an example actually recently of a company that by all means, everyone was like, okay, this is, here we go. Here might be our next microcap winner, you know, um, doing some things, executing on the strategy, you know, big acquisition, um, you know, year over year growth, profitable, the whole, all, all, all checking all the boxes. Right. And then the following week after, uh, I think it was, uh, announced, announcing the closing, they do a money raise, they do a capital raise. Right. <laughs> and you know, that, that kind of sometimes eats in the craw. There are some other reasons why I think that that bothered some investors that I know very well, but at the end of the day, that also kind of eats in your craw. You're like, really? Like, what? 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 Why? What's going on? You know. And so, do you? I'm going to ask this in a different way than maybe you'd expect. Do you blame management that of these companies that maybe know that they're kind of hitting on all those metrics and they're like, you know what? Stock's gone up a little bit. We're kind of one of the favored names out there in microcap. We have the retail support. Like, why not raise capital right now? You know, I'd love to hear your thoughts there. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I do blame management. I do. Uh, you know, they, they they have a constituency 
They should um, get to know the their investors. They should, uh, uh, in some ways, inkle that they're going to do something like that. It should not come as a surprise. To uh, that was the that was the problem. It yeah. was a surprise. I mean, yeah. And you know, it's not surprising that um, uh, a corporation is going to raise money when they can. That's when they should raise money. But it it, it definitely for if you're a young company. Um, you know, what you're banking on is your credibility over time. And so you have to back that up by uh, following through with your actions, what you say. I mean, it's, it's, uh, so yeah, you know, in short, I do blame management. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you, especially in the fact that it was a surprise, right? Mm -hmm. And, yeah. but then I try and think of like, okay, well, let's play devil's advocate. Like, well, do they just, think like, ah, eh, you know what? It's not the worst thing right now. Like stocks up, you know, hundred percent over, you know, in the last three months, like why we could probably use this maybe to pay down some debt. Why not? You know? So I, I can see that side, but you're right. When a company is that young, you know, it's, it's all about credibility at this point. They're going to need new shareholders. It's a new story. Yep. That's, that's right. Well, no, it gets, it kind of gets to my next question because, you know, on one hand you're thinking to yourself like, all right, I want to, I really want to, especially when you're looking at micro and nano taps, you know, you're like, okay, I want to find the good ones. I want to make sure that I'm invested in, in those, right? Maybe that, you know, uh, you've done your own due diligence. You see like, okay, this is, this fits all my criteria. You maybe see some other folks that are in it and you're like, okay, like I respect their opinion. We talk with them. You're like, okay you know, going to size up, here we go. And then like something like that happens. So, you know, when we talk about, you know, a better margin of safety, you know, in times like these, when looking in micro nano caps, I mean, how are you, wh why is it still now not the time to bet against small micro caps when these kinds of things might happen and continue to happen? Well, they are going to happen. Um, no doubt. You know, there's no question about that, but uh I would tell you when you look at the index performance for small and micro versus, uh, you know, large cap, the last 10 years of performance for small and micro contradicts the previous 100 years. The, uh, the long-term FAMA French data will tell you that the smallest three deciles of the market outperforms the largest three by a pretty good margin over the time. And the last five years has really done a good job convincing people otherwise. So... If you analyze the return stream of small and micro caps, uh, you're going to notice that the reason small and, and, and micro is outperformed is because it comes in three to seven year bursts, uh, usually after a period of uh, underperformance, which we've just seen. And I can't tell you when it's going to start, but for the moment, uh, I, you know, you can see the money goes to where it's being treated best. And that's been in the seven or eight of the largest tech companies. Uh, but if everybody owns the same stock, um, you know, who, who's left there to buy it? Um, uh, many of these companies are the same ones that led when we had zero interest rate policies. And, uh, and now T-bills are over five and uh, the two years over 4%. So um, if we're dependent on these companies, I don't think we're going to be in a general bull market. Uh, so at some point, I think we need new leadership. But our, our small cap strategy uh, has 21 years of history is trading at its low, lowest valuation we've ever seen. 
in 21 years. And um, we believe the lower valuation and solid balance sheets is what creates kind of a quantitative margin of safety. You know, we get the concerns around uh, the threats of a recession, cyclicality, but don't think that uh, our valuations should be lower than where they were in the great financial crisis or um, the dot-com blow up or a slew of other crises that we've, we've kind of managed through the last 20 years as a firm. And the last point I'd make is um, according to Fury Research and, uh, and Morningstar, uh, small caps of all the major asset classes have received the lowest amount of inflows since the great financial crisis. So uh, this includes bonds, international, domestic, you know, some things that have done worse than small caps. So nobody, you know, nobody plows headlong into an asset class at the bottom of a cycle. This is to me the, the behavioral uh, margin of safety right now. Absolutely. I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, I didn't have, I just had it anecdotally that, you know, there, the inflows have been the lowest they've ever been just from talking with various buy side. Um, in fact, we had, um, I don't know if you know Acuitas, but we had them do a, a presentation in Vegas because, you know, a lot of, a lot of PMs and buy side are looking for, you know, all the various avenues for, for potential inflows, you know, even from the institutional side. Um, and so it's, it's actually pretty fascinating when you think about, well, okay, how do I construct a strategy, especially as on a, if you have a smaller fund with less assets to deploy, it's like, what do I do from there? You know, do I just, you know, stay as I am? Do I s sell off maybe my, you know, tier B, maybe not so much my tier A stuff, you know, what, how, how should I think about it? I mean, as you were growing your strategy over the 20 plus years in your experience, I'm sure you had those times too, where you had to think to yourself, all right, this is kind of a rough, rough waters right now. You know, maybe you have some advice for those folks out there. Are you talking about the uh, unexpected, unexpected outflows or? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We've been, Fortunate, uh, we've been real methodical in our growth. We've we've attracted uh, um, good and and loyal clients that understand what they're getting into when they're getting into a micro cap strategy and understand the uh, you know the 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 illiquidity of the vehicles. We've explained to them why uh, owning illiquid vehicles over the long run can generate uh, better returns, but it's also going to generate outsized volatility, outsized drawdowns. And so um, I, I think the, you know, you need to have a good match between um, timeframes between the manager and, uh, and the clients. And, uh, and it's gotta be more than a, a legal thing. It's gotta be a, a true understanding of what it is you're doing and why you're doing it. 100%. So I want to actually take a couple steps back here, Howard. You know, for those that don't know you and Punch and Associates, you know, I'd love to get your background. You know, when did your passion for investing begin? And then also what led to um, you launching the microcap strategy at Punch and Associates? Yeah, great. Um, well, um, going back a long, long time, I started at a large warehouse in an era in Minnesota where you could buy 10% tax-free municipal bonds that were insured. It was hard to get clients uh, back then for me. I was young. I wasn't a great salesman. So once I, I got a client, I didn't want to lose them by picking bad stocks. And uh, 
I was uh, conservative with other people's money. Um, clients started to ask me about stocks. So I, d I decided I should try to figure out how to pick them. So uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I listened to the company research and I decided I was going to take the plunge and, and buy a stock for a few cl clients. The first stock I bought was uh, for clients was RCA. Um, it went down almost immediately. <laughs> I went back and reread our firm's research. I ordered the 10 Qs and 10 Ks back then, which came by snail mail. I, I tried to figure out where I'd gone wrong. Um, and the market had just simply pulled back. And, uh, as you know, GE eventually bought RCA and, and things worked out with that particular stock. My experience over the next few years was hit or miss. I didn't really have a philosophy. I listened to stock tips. I read newsletters. I read the company research. I, I tried to figure out what I liked or didn't like. Uh, and I just made a bunch of mistakes and, uh, I didn't really make clients much money. And, uh, uh, in the late 80s, I had back surgery. Unfortunately, I was laid up for like four months. It was invasive surgery at that time. I decided uh, in looking at what I was doing in the business that I was going to need a philosophy that told me what to buy or sell, what to hold and why. And so I, I went to Barnes & Noble and bought a bunch of books and and I read. And uh, um, I, I read the classics, but I enjoyed William O'Neill's book, uh, How to Make Money in Stocks. He was the, uh, the founder, as many of you know, of uh, Investors Business Daily and uh, had the acronym uh, uh, that uh, for uh, uh, stock picking that was called Can Slim. Yep. So he had a, a concrete system for identifying companies that could be winners. Uh, the S in Slim stands for shares outstanding, uh, which according to his criteria was 30 million shares outstanding at the time. I don't know what it is now, but uh, uh, you know that led me to small caps. Um, but uh, there were things about uh, his approach, his strategy that, that, that I didn't like uh, and didn't scale for a money manager and uh, or maybe good for a, a smaller money manager or somebody that uh, managed their own money. And, and I would endorse that, but uh, it didn't work for a money manager. And uh, I, I read Peter Lynch's book. Uh, it just made a lot of sense to me. I liked his, the practicality of his approach. Uh, he investing in things that you knew. Uh, I liked how he divided his companies into silos like uh, stalwarts, fast growers, slow growers, turnarounds, et cetera. And it, it, it seemed more like an all weather approach that would work for me over time. And we do something somewhat similar in our approach. And, uh, um, you know, Buffett's quoted a lot, but I think Peter Lynch has some of the, you know, the best quotes that, that, I, that, that you know, I, I continuously recite to, to, to my team and, and to clients. Uh, he said, if you spend 13 minutes a year on economics, you've wasted 10 minutes. <laughs> and uh, the, the other quote that I love is, you can do very well in the stock market. All you need is two stocks per decade. So think about that. It, to, to me, that that takes all the pressure off. Two stocks per decade. Uh, you have to do th something every day, you know. And I think Buffett would agree. It's uh, you take away Geico, Apple, and a few others, and Buffett's probably underperformed the S and P over 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 his lifetime. So 
Um, it, it's really a, a good a good point that it stood the, a quote that stood the test of time. So I eventually, I decided that I enjoyed finding and owning little known companies that had a, a revenue stream and that was attached to a profitability stream. That that I felt like I could understand that, and uh, I like to find them when their expectations were were low or even non-existent. I also concluded that I couldn't sleep well at night unless I got to know the, the, the management team and what they viewed as their place in the market and what their vision was of the future. Uh, I, I owned a lot of stocks over the long term. If you own a successful company for five or 10 years, you're assured to get a 40 or 50% drawdown uh, a few times over that 10 year period. So those critical moments, you need to have confidence uh, in the management team and you need to have access to them. Um, so you, you asked me what attracted me to microcaps. It was, uh, it was a, a game that I, I, I thought I could win at. Uh, it was uh, one of the great things about, I think, small and microcap investing is that uh, you're not competing against great macro minds, huge teams that Soros or Tepper or Griffin have, uh, you know, Buff I think Buffett has suggested a number of occasions that he could attain greater returns if he was a micro cap investor. You know, uh, that that that's really what you know attracted me. I mean, you know, I'd be a curious what what attracted you. Yeah, no, I mean, it was very much well. One, it, it was part of my family's business. Well, my my father was investment banker over twenty five years. And okay. so, so, and he made a market in 300, over 300 stocks. So for me, I was kind of, you know, I was having cereal and hearing about this latest IPO or something. Oh, so like, I, I, I kind of been in it for, for a very long time, but really only, but you know, you know how it goes with family business sometimes, or, you know, you don't take it seriously until like a little bit later. So once when I was in college is when I started really being like, okay, this is actually super interesting and I really love it. And, yeah. you know, kind of, it was also pretty easy when like the first job they had me doing was looking at cannabis stocks while still in college. Like that, that doesn't hurt, you know, um, yeah. they're all dogs. Don't get me wrong, but it was still, <laughs> still, is he still, is he still around to, to feed you ideas. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's, okay. he won't stop. Um, you know, and, and, you know, thinking about you, you talked, you talked about, you know, uh, sorry, not to change back to, you know, what we're, what we got going on here, but, you know, we were talking about, you know, Vegas, we just, you know, we made merch uh, for those who are watching on the, the video yeah. version here, but we were just talking about Vegas and, you know, management teams and, and talking with management. I mean, the whole point going to a conference like ours is actually conversing and meeting with management have, you know, talking to them over drinks and getting to know the real, you know, who they are, because, you know, you're going to be investing in them and especially in microcaps in many respects, you know, so for you, I mean, over your, I guess now be 30, 40 plus years doing this. I mean, what are, what are your main criteria when you're evaluating management that makes you feel comfortable and wanting to hold one of their, that company for a five, 10, maybe even 15 years? Yeah. When I initially um, meet them, I'm trying to figure out um, whether they're missionaries or mercenaries. And, uh, you know, missionaries, you know, they have a, a purpose that goes beyond the money at the corporation. Uh, they, they have a responsibility to their shareholders. They have a responsibility to their employees. They have a responsibility to their clients. And it's something 
that they would almost do for free. Uh, and so ideally, that's what you're looking for when you meet these people and, and you got to get at that. You know, sometimes you can get at it through like a really well-written shareholder letter. Uh, but typically, you're not going to get at that until you have some conversations with them. And uh, uh, ideally, in person, if you can. I mean, are there, are there any questions that you like to specifically ask, Pandra? I mean, I, you know, we have we have another show on here called the Due Diligence Series where, you know, I, I think I ask the majority of the questions that almost every investor in a, in a one-on-one or, you know, having time with management will probably ask. But I mean, everybody is different. And sometimes, you know, you have a certain question that'll give you a certain cue about that CEO's character or, or not. You know, I'd love to hear if you have any specific questions in particular that you like to ask management, whether it's the first meeting or maybe the fifth meeting. Um, there, there's no none of them that occur to me like uh, right off the bat, but uh, it, it's nice when a CEO can be honest and vulnerable and when you can get them talking about their biggest mistake that they made and what they would do differently. We also try to ask them about their competition and uh, who they're afraid of competing with and why. And um, so sometimes we get other ideas uh, as a result of uh, you know somebody saying, I, I sure hope this guy doesn't compete with me in this area. Um, it, it, it tends to, you know, uh, get us to want to make another phone call. So, but there, there's a ton of questions we ask that just come up at the spur of the moment um, in conversations. We try to ask mostly open-ended questions that they can take anywhere. And that leads to more open-ended questions. And it leads to, you know, you know, kind of questions that um, you'd want to know that, uh, that have more to do with culture, how they treat their employees. Um, you can get at some of this through uh, looking through a proxy and seeing what the incentive systems, uh, incentive uh, um, priorities are, and uh, or you can look in a 10K and you can see, you know, stuff like related party transactions and uh, stuff that will scare you away from a particular company. But, um, you know, there, there's just a lot of uh, uh, open-ended questions that, that um, tend to change from company to company. Very true. All those questions that you ask, that you like to hear are also the same ones I hear. I, I at a conference I think four years ago. I it was the first time I finally was you know I was in one of those group settings with with management. Everyone's throwing out questions, and before the CEO was even prompted, he said, "This is where we fail. This is how we will fail." Like a full slide dedicated just to that, and yeah. that immediately earned my respect. You yeah. know, like that, that's, that's the, that's, that's the good stuff right there. Because even whether, whether you care about the company or not, like at least now, you know, okay, well, if I, why are you spelling it out for me? Like this makes yeah. my job that much easier because we're always trying to protect our downside. That's a good point. That's, that's a great slide to keep. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I'll have to check his most recent presentation. I don't know if he kept it, but it was, <laughs> I think he kept it for a while. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, now I, I, I'm assuming your investing philosophy hasn't changed, you know, maybe a little bit tinkering here and there and whatnot. But, you know, as we're recording this on on uh, Tuesday, May 9th, 
2023. You know, when you think about, you know, potential new ideas right now, you know, what what are you looking at? Maybe that's specific to the time period we are in right now, or just, just maybe in general and how you're applying all of that. Yeah. You know, the best in philosophy, best investment philosophy uh, needs, I think, in some sense to be timeless. Um, it, you know, it, it's going to work during certain time periods and it's not going to work. And that's what makes it a philosophy of any investment philosophy that uh, needs to narrow down the universe of what you're going, going to consider. It's, it's not for us. It's not always clear what we will buy, uh, but I think it's pretty clear what we won't buy. And uh, the North star for a firm like ours is profitable and under the radar. Um, with select firms, we don't necessarily have to be contrarian or great make a great macro call. We just have to be early. Uh, we love it when management tells us uh, as we visit them that uh, nobody from the buy or sell side, you know, has visited them, um, you know, in years. And that 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 to us is music to our ears. And uh, um, the the other point I make is importantly that that we've really added. Uh, um, over the last, I would say, 10 years uh, is the philosophy that returns on capital is greatest where capital is most scarce. And uh, uh, there's a there's a great book called Capital Returns that uh, is written by uh, uh, a group out of London called Marathon Asset Management that talks about uh, uh, this concept. And so we tend to avoid areas where a lot of capital has recently flowed. Um, you know, cannabis might be a good example of an area we would avoid um, just because of all the capital that's flowed into it. Um, we need to understand a company, how it makes money. Lots of companies uh, for us end up in the in the too hard pile. Um, profitable, I talked about profitable. It may sound boring, but if you screen the Russell Microcap Index right now, uh, only 36% of the pro the companies are EBITDA profitable over the last 12 months. So, you know, you can eliminate two thirds of your stories. And, you know, the best stories for a new investor are usually come or belong to unprofitable companies uh, that are gonna change the world. Most of our companies um, are not gonna change the world. Um, we have stats that we've compiled that uh, show not surprisingly that holding only profitable small cap companies outperforms um, since inception, the, the Russell 2000 index, uh, uh, and I believe that's since 1978, and it's not by a little. Um, people talk about catalysts with, with under-the-radar companies. Uh, the best catalyst is um, just long-term execution. It, it gets companies noticed, and eventually uh, you don't need, you know, like a, a concrete catalyst. Uh, it's it's going to be increased earnings, increased revenue. Um, the other piece of our philosophy is management matters more in smaller firms than a larger firm. Uh, it is the uh, toughest thing to evaluate, but I would tell you, for me, it's the most enjoyable thing to try. Um, I, I talked about CEOs and missionaries over mercenaries. Uh, founders can be good or they can be entrenched. We will often have half a dozen conversations with the management team before owning shares and, and somebody on our eight person investment team 
is going to be in constant communication with firms we own uh, for our clients. So um, we're a value manager. So price matters. Uh, many times we have to take a temporary pass on firms we like a lot just because we can't access the liquidity at the right price. And then uh, finally, we tend to uh, uh, start small and build a position as our conviction increases. Absolutely. Thank you for that for all that. I hope I, I might just clip it because I, I thought that was that was that was really good. You know, but I wanted to dig in also the the idea of when you're looking at microcap management teams, and we talk about that a lot on the podcast. You know, there's I mean, especially microcaps made the point already. It's you're basically betting on the jockey at this point. But I like this idea of how you categorize it of missionaries versus mercenaries. That's really fascinating. So I want to dig into that. So, you know, now looking at mercenaries. Because that's a difficult thing sometimes to really decipher because you might have, you know, uh, a mercenary hiding in missionary clothing, if I may, where, you know, if I could go on the the analogy where, you know, they might have, you know, a significant, they might own a significant stake in the company and yet have an incredibly high uh, salary, right? And they it ends up being a piggy bank slash they own a lot of it so they can kind of really do what they will and not care potentially, you know, mm -hmm. so love to get your, your insight there of like, you know, the various types of, you know, mercenaries that can be out there that are disguising themselves as missionaries. If I may. Yeah, I think I wrote an article about this uh, um, several years ago and I, I can't recall the, the substance of it, but uh, my, my example uh, for a typical mercenary, CEO was Chainsaw Al at uh, Sunbeam Corporation. And he, he came in there uh, and, and basically commanded a huge salary because he executed some turnarounds in the past and, uh, and basically looted the company. And, uh, and so that, that, that's kind of like a wolf in wolf's clothing. Um, uh, so it, it's kind of an easy one um, to spot. And, and I'm not going to say that a mercenary CEO cannot make you money. They can. Um, I'm just simply saying that uh, I will sleep better at night um, if I can identify someone uh, that, can, that 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 really cares about every constituency at the company, that cares about uh, you know their reputation long term, that is setting up the company long term, that cares cares about the employees long-term, that cares about the shareholders, that, uh, that, that is not just focused on his stock options, uh, but is, is, is focused on sharing the success of the company throughout the company. And, um, and, I, and I do think that that can be identified, maybe not right away in the first meeting, maybe not even in the sixth meeting, but over time, it can be identified. And where I, when I look at the companies that we've held for 10 years, five to 10 years, I have to say that most of them have missionary oriented uh, CEOs that we've identified and, and, and said, okay, we can sleep at night with this guy at the helm. He's going to do what's right. And uh, he's going to do what's right for the long term. We may have a 40 or 50% drawdown like we would with a mercenary company, but, you know, we're still going to be able to hang in there with them. 
What, what, I mean, you don't have to name a company when I ask this question, but, you know, I'd love to hear an experience that you've had where, you know, you, it, it was basically a learning lesson where you were really starting to kind of categorize like, okay, this is how I should, this is how I want to be thinking about management teams. You know, the, I have the missionary camp, mercenary camp. I'd love to hear an experience that helped you, you know, really figure out this categorization. Again, you don't have to name the company or even describe, but love, love to hear it some kind of anecdote. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll give you a, a fairly recent example. Uh, we own a, uh, a medical company that um, was experiencing uh, some degree of success. We've had several conversations with the CEO of this company and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, we uh, noticed that he, uh, uh, a year and a half ago, you know, took some of his, holdings and liquidated them in a secondary transaction um, at, a, at a fairly good double digit price. And, uh, and, and uh, he said it was for estate tax purposes and, you know, that people need money for that purpose, but he was getting a, um, a decent salary. And uh, he had historically shown that he was willing to go into the open market and do a, uh, an insider transaction on the buy side in the past. And we had asked him, uh, you know, after the stock had uh, a pretty substantial pullback, uh, he was commenting on the, the quarterly call that uh, the stock is really cheap. I can't understand why the valuation is there. And we got in a separate call with him and uh, said, why are you not buying your own stock? I mean, you've done that in the past. And and um, uh, he, he said he was locked out. You know, he said he blamed it on the lawyers. And uh that went on for a couple of quarters. He never bought it. And, uh, you know, and the stock blew up again. And, uh, and so to me, that was, uh, that was, you know, where, where, where he kind of lost me. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it happens in the, in the small and micro cap space. We're big boys and girls here. We can, we can, we can, <laughs> Take our medicine, which we did, and uh, and, and and move on. But, uh, no, no pun intended there. Right. <laughs> so, um, but that that was a, a recent example, and uh, you know, fool me once, shame on me, type of thing. I think the probably the greatest lesson that you shared from that story is just you know, take try and do your best out there, everyone, to take management at their word. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, and also from management side, like if you're gonna say, you better friggin' do it because. Right. Uh, you you will lose people um yeah. pretty immediately um right. especially, especially if you lose the money um but one other question on the experience side of things you know we talked about you know lessons learned from uh, creating this categorization of missionaries and mercenaries but is there any other you know you mentioned RCA at the beginning of your career you know is there any other investing experience that you would say really changed your career or guided you towards how you think about microcaps today yeah, I, I think as a general experience, I, I had one in the, uh, I bought a stock in a company in the mid 80s. Uh, it was a company that uh, I had just started to do my own independent research. And uh, it was a company that made uh, several acquisitions, but became known for being the primary manufacturer of weenie casings, um, cellulosa casings for things like sausages and hot dogs and stuff. And uh, and it did quite well. And um and it became a large holding for my clients at the time. Um, and it was one of my largest 
personal holdings. Uh, unfortunately, I learned what can happen when you hold a stock on margin uh, during the crash of 1987. And so um, the experience taught me a couple of things. It taught me about the rewards of doing your own research and developing your own conviction. Uh, but it also taught me a little bit about uh, risk management and, uh, you know, to, to size your positions appropriately and uh, also maybe not use margin. <laughs> yeah, that, wow, that, that sounds like another podcast for another day. <laughs> Learning about that. Well, I, you know, Howard, you, you're, we're pretty much there. We we covered a lot of stuff. I mean, is there anything else that we haven't covered or things maybe you want folks to, you know, take away from this interview, um, just either in general, maybe uh, an outlook? I, I love, love to hear your, your you know, your kind of your final take here. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great space. I mean, I really uh, get up, you know, I, you know, I don't skip to work, but uh, I get pretty excited to <laughs> come to work and uh, and to dig in and to find the, the 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 next big winner. It's a it's like a great Easter egg hunt uh, every day. Um, you're 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 looking for trails that uh, lead you to to, to successful successful investments. Uh, you know, for new investors, I just uh, tell you to get started. It's a wonderful space. Uh, I live in Minnesota where it gets quite cold in the winter and we like to say it keeps the riffraff out here. Uh, Minnesota is is not for everybody. And uh, I would say microcap investing is similar. It's, uh, it's not for everybody. Uh, as a professional, you can't be focused on huge AUM numbers in this space uh, and also enjoy success. Uh, but to me, that's the good news for uh, smaller funds or smaller investors, they can em- enjoy uh, enjoy a, an advantage. Uh, uh, um, you know, for new investors, I'd, I'd say, you know, just pay attention to what you're attracted to, where and and where you might be a little bit off balance. And as you learn about investing, uh, you should also be learning about who you are as an investor. And uh, I'm in the business 40 years and. Uh, I'm still learning. We we have owned a small medical company uh, for almost two years, and it's been okay for us. Uh, it hasn't uh, blown up or anything. But uh, you know, I I just told my team the other day, we're the wrong owners for this company. And so you you, you just kind of come to that conclusion, and it sometimes it it takes time. Uh, I would say also to new investors, be skeptical of narratives. Uh, the best ones are usually attached to the least profitable companies and are too easy to find. And uh, I would say successful investments are found. Uh, they usually don't find you. So if, if they find you, um, be skeptical and uh, keep a journal, write down your thesis and, and why this company will do well and then revisit it periodically to make sure that uh, and the, the thesis still holds. And uh, and then I'd just say, uh, read a lot and, uh, you know, listen to podcasts like this one. Oh, I appreciate that, man. Thank you. You didn't have to do that. I, I appreciate <laughs> it. Well, Howard, thank, by the way, I love that phrase. You know, it, your best investments are found and they don't find you. That, I, I, that, that sure. really, really rings true. Um, well, with that, Howard, where can our audience go and find more information on Punch & Associates? Yeah, I'm not 
big on Twitter or anything, but uh, we're at www.punchinvest.com. Um, you can dig into our newsletters that are out there and um, commentary. Um, we got a great group that, uh, you know, takes a lot of time to write these articles on a variety of different topics uh, from wealth management to income investing to, to small and micro cap investing. Very cool. Well, Howard, thank you so much for joining me today. Really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And I really look forward to our next update. You bet. Thank Take you. care. Thanks, Bobby. Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Yes.